0: My name is James Sagers, and my friends call me Jim or Jimmy, and it's my pleasure to introduce this series to you, Understanding Catholicism. Well, it's so nice to have you with us today as we begin our journey understanding Catholicism. And today we're going to focus on how God speaks to us, how he speaks to us through uh, divine revelation, through sacred tradition, and of course, the beautiful sacred scriptures. So let us begin then with the Jesus prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. O oh, my divine savior, transform me into yourself. May my hands be the hands of Jesus. May my tongue be the tongue of Jesus. Grant that every faculty of my body may serve only to glorify you. Above all, transform my soul and all its powers that my memory, my will, and my affections may be the memory, the will, and the affections of Jesus. I pray you to destroy in me all that is not you, and grant that I may live but in you and for you, and that I may truly say with St. Paul, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me." That beautiful prayer was written by St. John Gabriel Perbor, who was martyred in China shortly before our Civil War. Let's begin. The amazing love for God that he wants to talk to his children. His love propels him to reveal himself and the marvelous destiny he has prepared for each one of his earthly creatures. The book of Hebrews informs us, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he has created the world. not that a beautiful prayer from the book of Hebrews, the verse first two verses in chapter one. So in these divine communication, God speaks, and we are called to listen and to respond faithfully as the deepest truths about God and about our salvation shines out for us in Christ who in himself is both the mediator and the sum total of all God's revelation. This divine revelation comes to us in two forms. Orally, that's called sacred tradition, communicated to the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles in the Christian era. The written revelation of God called the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit inspired men to write these love letters that make up the Bible. And so let's examine then each one of these two sources. Let's begin then by looking at sacred tradition, which is also called tradition with a capital T, or apostolic tradition. The word we're using, tradition, paradosis in Greek, refers to truths that are handed down. The Bible uses the word tradition in two senses. It can merely refer to human customs or it can identify divine revelation. But the Bible never rejects authentic sacred tradition, it does condemn those customs, those human traditions that either, number one, violate God's commandments or in the words of St. Paul, those human traditions are customs that teach philosophy, and empty deceit that is contrary to the teaching of God's revelation. Sadly, of course, this has become very common in our world today. The Catholic Church teaches that sacred tradition was faithfully handed on to the apostles and then to their successors of the apostles, so that, enlightened by the Holy Spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. St. Paul actually describes this process in his letter to the Corinthians. So he wrote, I commend you because you remember me and everything, and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. So notice he's describing the reality and the process. Again, in that same letter he wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. So in the context of this last passage, St. Paul instructs the Corinthians on the seriousness of receiving the Blessed Eucharist worthily because it is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to see a lot more about that later. So sacred scripture and sacred tradition form one, sacred deposit of God's revelation, because the Bible springs from God's oral instruction as from a source written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. St. Paul then affirms sacred tradition. He writes, "'So then, brethren, stand firm "'and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, "'either by word of mouth his preaching, his teaching, or by letters, his inspired letters. Notice here that St. Paul teaches that tradition, his oral teaching, and his inspired letters form one source that Christians are bound to hold firmly. Subsequently, the saint wrote, Now we commend you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is living in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. St. Paul then commands Christians in very strong language to faithfully follow the teachings that they were taught. This command is as binding today as it was in the very first century. St. Paul also identified his oral instruction as the word of god and so he wrote and we also thank god constantly for this that when you receive the word of god which you notice heard from us you receive it not as the word of men but as what it really is namely the word of god which is at work in you believers in his instruction to his beloved timothy saint paul also emphasized the importance of sacred tradition he wrote for this gospel I was appointed notice a preacher and an apostle and a teacher he says nothing about writing then he instructed Timothy follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Finally, St. Paul admonishes Timothy to pass on these truths as he was taught by his predecessors, and he's gonna pass them on to his successors. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice how the faith is being passed on from generation to generation. The New Testament, which surprises many people, uses tradition, as we're going to see, in a few examples that we're going to cite below. For example, in his first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul wrote, All drank the same supernatural rock, for they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So notice that in this passage, St. Paul shows that the Christian sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist were prefigured in the Old Testament. However, the Old Testament says nothing about a rock that followed the Israelites in the desert. It was a tradition. In fact, there was a rabbinic tradition that the rock followed the Jews on their journey in the desert. And another tradition, That this rock that followed them equates with pre-existent wisdom. Saint Jude in Jude 9 says this: When the Archangel Michael, contended with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a reviling judgment upon him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, in relating this altercation between Michael and Satan, St. Jude here replies on an oral tradition because there's nothing in the Old Testament that talks about this. Paul also draws upon tradition, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, to supply the names of the magicians who opposed Moses in Pharaoh's court. He calls them Janes and Jambres. That's not in the book of Exodus saint luke informs us that the very source of his gospel was oral tradition so he tells us just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and so he received that from the apostles and now he's passing that on to us in his gospel in the book of acts we're told that the law came through angels not directly from God. This Jewish tradition is found, for example, in Josephus' Antiquity of the Jews and in the Book of Jubilees, but it is not found in the Old Testament. So let's take a moment and consider the actual practice of the early church. Some Christians seem to have the erroneous idea that what was going on in the first years of Christianity is that the gospel was spread uh, through non-denominational Bible studies. Uh, this is clearly historically false, for a number of reasons, uh, the chief of which that the book that we now call the Bible did not yet exist. We're going to discuss this somewhat later. And what we find is the clear evidence that the spread of Christianity was, was achieved by preachers, not writers. For almost a generation, the memories of Christ's life and teaching were kept by oral tradition. It is historically irrefutable that the Christian faith was established and passed on well into the second century by the means of oral tradition and not in writings, the New Testament. In this way, the apostles were faithful to the commission they received from Jesus to preach the gospel to all nations. And that message, to preach the of gospel to all nations, is as true today as it was so many hundreds of years ago. It's just as true as when Peter preached the first sermon on Pentecost Sunday. He proclaimed Jesus as the Lord and Savior who was crucified, died, and rose from the dead. Jesus came to call us to repent so our sins can be forgiven and we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit so we can be saved from this crooked generation. This message delivered by the apostles is so powerful that it converted the pagan world in just a few centuries. The Baptist scholar Lee McDonald also confirms the church had an oral tradition concerning God that was taught and proclaimed in the early communities of faith, alongside the scriptures of Judaism, meaning the Old Testament. So when heresies arose, he explains how the church defended the authentic gospel. He wrote, This was done at first by the rule of faith that appears to have been embodied in oral tradition about God, but eventually also by the rule of certain writings that were believed to, be, to have transmitted faithfully the tradition about God, about Jesus and about our salvation. The international respected scholar, J. N. D. Kelly, also testifies to the vital role of tradition in the Apostolic Church. He wrote that when asked about the authentic faith, where was it to be found? The answer was clear and unequivocal. In a general way, it was contained in the Church's continuous tradition of teaching and more concretely, in the sacred scriptures, specifically the New Testament. They were, in fact, the twin, as we shall see, overlapping authorities to which Christians look for the confirmation of their beliefs, and just as we're doing today, over 2,000 years later. There are very important truths that are taught in sacred traditions, specifically, but are not explicitly taught in the Bible. Let's look at some of these. For example, the determination of which books belong in the Bible. The Bible doesn't give us a a divinely inspired index. The church gives us that. Christians have always believed that the sanctity of human life begins from the moment of conception, but the Bible doesn't teach that explicitly. The belief that public revelation ceased with the death of the last apostle is not explicitly taught in sacred scripture. Similarly, the changing of the Lord's day from Saturday to Sunday is not explicitly taught in the Bible. The prohibition against polygamy, that is, having more than one spouse at the same time, is forbidden in the Christian era, but that is not taught in the Old Testament. In fact, even the mystery of the Blessed Trinity is not explicitly taught in sacred scripture. Why does the Bible say there's one God with three distinct divine persons? It doesn't say that. Now, we can support the teaching of the Blessed Trinity biblically, but it is not so explicit, and that's why there were so many errors regarding the sacred Trinity in the early centuries. So, let's then take a more in-depth look at sacred Scripture, God's love letters. Let's begin with the division. The Bible has two major divisions. One is called the Old Testament, which deals with the Old Testament church looking for the coming of Christ, and the others called the New Testament with the advent of Jesus. The word testament comes from the Latin word testamentum, which means covenant. Uh, the covenant is a big deal. The covenant is a kinship bond between two parties with conditions, or obligations established by an oath or its equivalent. The idea of the covenant is a great theme that runs through the whole entire Bible, showing the process of how God established a family tie, a marital bond with humanity. Terms like family bond and marriage are often used to convey the concept of and the meaning of the covenant. Therefore, this idea of the covenant is far more important is far richer than the idea can conveyed by the word contract. Now, this division of the Old and the New Testament was originally given to us by St. Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians. The Old Testament prepares the way for Jesus and looks to his coming. The New Testament reveals the fulfillment in Christ. As St. Augustine explained, the New Testament lies hidden in the Old and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. Ah, that is so beautiful. At the dawn of civilization, God pledged in the first book of the Bible that a woman's seed, a son, would ultimately defeat Satan. The New Testament reveals that this seed, this divine Son of God, who is going to assume human nature, will conquer the devil by his self-sacrificing love. So you can see how the two dovetail together. The Old Testament gives a sequence of covenants God made in order to advance his relationship with the human race. And he did this through the mediation of Adam and Noah, Abraham, Moses, and finally David. And then together with all the prophets, that all looks to and prepares the way for the chosen people to receive the coming of the Messiah, which is Jesus Christ. Throughout history, God uses human mediators to become involved in the family business of the Blessed Trinity, which is the salvation of souls. God doesn't need us, but He chooses to use us because that's what a Father does. This calling continues today. For example, In parents who are commissioned to train their children for paradise. The New Testament focuses on the definitive covenant made through Jesus Christ. Let's consider the Old Testament now in a little bit more detail. When the New Testament refers to the Scriptures, it is not a reference to the Bible, but to the 46 books of the Old Testament. The New Testament, of course, had not yet been completed. The most important translation of the Old Testament was called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, carried out between the third and the first centuries before Christ. The word Septuagint comes from the Latin word meaning 70. It was so named because, according to the Jewish tradition, 70 scholars allegedly made this ancient translation. It's very important. It is often identified by the Roman numerals LXX for the number 70. One of the reasons it's so important is that 85% of all the Old Testament quotations found in the New Testament are drawn from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew Old Testament. Almost all of the Church Fathers regarded the Septuagint as the standard form of the Old Testament. In fact, St. Augustine even speculated that the Septuagint was actually divinely inspired. There are a total of 46 books that make up the Old Testament. The first five are called the Pentateuch, or sometimes the Torah. Genesis is the first. The word means origin. Genesis focuses on the creation of the cosmos, and humans. In Adam and Eve, it focuses on them, their fall, the formation of a chosen people via Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Then it goes to the book of Exodus, which narrates the escape from Egypt, the covenant God made at Sinai through Moses, and the renewal of that covenant after the apostasy of the golden calf. The book of Leviticus focuses on the laws, the liturgical laws, regarding things like ritual purity, holiness, atonement, worship, and religious observances. The Book of Numbers begins with a census and covers the period from the Exodus all the way through the period in the desert, wandering just outside, entering into the Promised Land. And the Book of Deuteronomy, also called the Second Law, provides details of a second covenant that God made through Moses. There are 16 books of the Old Testament that are called historical books. Joshua, which describes the chosen people's entrance into the promised land and its conquest. The book of Judges that goes from the death of Joshua to the advent of the prophet Samuel and the founding of the kingdom. It depicts a cycle of sin and punishment, repentance, and forgiveness. The Book of Ruth is a story of a faithful Moabite woman who became the ancestor of King David. The books of first and second Samuel depict the monarchy, focusing on the prophet Samuel and the King Saul and David. First and Second Kings covers the period from the end of David's reign to the exile. First and second chronicles provides a survey from the creation of the world to the time of the Babylonian exile. The Book of Ezra describes the events of the remnants returning to the Holy Land after the exile. The Book of Nehemiah, which occurs during the same period, focuses on the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the effort to restore Jerusalem to its former glory. The Book of Tobit tells the the wonderful story of how the angel Raphael helped the marriage of Sarah and Tobit during the time of the Assyrian exile. The book of Exeter is a wonderful narrative of how this wonderful woman, this wonderful Jewish woman, saved her people during the exile in the Persian Empire. And finally, 1st and 2nd Maccabees chronicles the struggle of the Jews on the Jewish Maccabees and his family against the persecution of the Seleucid kings in the 2nd century B.C., when when the kings are trying to stamp out the Jewish religion. And then lastly, the beautiful Book of Judah describes how God defeats evil through the courage of a pious woman. Four of the books are called Major Prophets. The Book of Isaiah is the most quoted of the Old Testament prophets in the New Testament. It provides profound spiritual insights and gives the most detailed account of the coming Messiah. Isaiah predicts the birth of the Messiah who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He also predicts the Messianic banquet there will be serving choice wines. And here we see, of course, a reference to the Marriage Feast of Cana. And anticipation of the Blessed Eucharist. The book of Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. It warns of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and its temple and it gives hope of the coming new covenant of the Messiah. Jeremiah is the one who hid the Ark of the Covenant and it was never found, of course, until uh, Indiana Jones came along and now it's in a warehouse someplace in Arizona. Ezekiel was written in the Babylonian exile. It tells how the exiles are to understand the fall of Jerusalem, judgment, and the coming salvation with the advent of the Messiah. The book of Daniel tells of the trials and tribulations of Daniel and his companions who are in exile in Babylon. It also looks to the future glory of Israel and the coming of the Messiah. Fourteen of the books are called minor prophets, not because they're not important, but because they're much shorter in length. The book of Amos is an oracle given in Judea, but addressed to the kingdom of Israel. The book of Hosea is a very touching narrative that compares the infidelity of Hosea's wife, Gomer, to the infidelity of God's people, how they break the covenant. At the same time, it speaks of the coming Messiah, and so it predicts, with loving marital language, God saying, I will espouse you forever. I will espouse you in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, and I will espouse you in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Ah, beautiful. The book of Lamentations mourns over the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the exile that followed. The book of Micah attacks the injustices, and corruption of priests, prophets, and officials, and the people in the kingdom of Judea. And it also announces the coming punishment that they're bringing upon themselves. Baruch was actually Jeremiah's companion and secretary. In the book that bears his name, focuses on God's righteousness, on justice, and a better future if, if, the people will return to God. Boy, that applies today. The book of Zephaniah was written amid a time of idolatry, superstition, and degradation. This book was a call to be faithful, to repent. It announces that judgment will come because they bring it upon themselves, but at the same time, a holy remnant will be spared. The book of Nahum is a book of prophecy of the destruction of Nineveh and the overthrow of the Assyrians by Babylon. Habakkuk gives an understanding of divine punishment as the Babylonian exile is approaching. That was a terrible time in the history of Israel. The Book of Haggai encourages the returning exiles to remain faithful in rebuilding the temple. And the Book of Zechariah urges the returning exiles to have faith while rebuilding the temple and eventually building the walls of Jerusalem. They are confronted with a message that the Messiah will bring peace to all the nations. The book of Malachi contains oracles <clears throat> that are called to repentance and commitment as the book forms a pure offering that will be coming in the future by the Messiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in the whole Old Testament, consisting of only 21 verses. It condemns the Edomites, who are the enemies of the Jews, as they return from exile. The book of Joel calls the people to public repentance as the day of the Lord is coming. That's a day of judgment. It's a day of fear if you're in sin, it's a day of joy if you're not in sin. The book of Jonah teaches that God even wishes the conversion of the Gentiles, a theme that we develop in the New Testament. Paul calls it the mystery hidden from the beginning of the world that the Gentiles are called on an evil footing with, with the Jews. So no one is outside of God's love and care. The seven books that are called the wisdom books. The book of Job grapples with the issue of, well, how can a just man be suffering? The Psalms are 150 religious songs, poetry, that are used in the temple liturgy. The Psalms cover all the human emotions and are a masterwork of prayer. David was responsible for 73 of the 150 Psalms. Jesus himself prayed the Psalms and quoted them on the cross. For example, Psalm 22, verse 1, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, Jesus is despairing. He's actually calling on God, and and at the end, he's giving all his trust to the Heavenly Father. And then Psalm 35, verse 5, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The book of Proverbs consists of wise saying to inspire moral living as opposed to a life of folly. The Song of Songs, which is my favorite book in the Old Testament, is beautiful love poetry that depicts the intimacy between God and his people. Christians read it as a description of the love between the heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church. The book opens with this amazing statement, kiss me with the kiss of your mouth. Saint Bernard of Clairvaux talks about the three kisses we encounter in the course of our life. The first is the kiss of his feet as we repent And we keep a balance between his love and his mercy. The second is the kiss of his hands, which focuses on God's generosity and our need for fortitude. Think, for example, of Peter being grabbed by the hand and pulled by Jesus into the boat when he's sinking like a rock. And finally, the kiss of his mouth, intimacy of a lover. And we experience that every time we receive Jesus in the Blessed Eucharist. The book of Sirach. <clears throat> pertains to the church. It lists the moral maxims, support that are, that are fundamental to the divine law. Ecclesiastes declares that all is vanity except fear of the Lord and keeping the commandments. Jesus was asked, "What must I do to be saved?" Jesus said, "Do you don't do anything? You just accept me as your Lord and Savior." No, that's not what he said. What he said was, "Keep." The commandments and the book of wisdom discusses justice immortality the afterlife and how to remain faithful to god amid a time of oppression now we come to the new testament first of all we need to understand that there was a gradual recognition in the early church that the 27 books that make up our new testament should be accepted as divinely inspired on an equal footing with the old testament however an authoritative determination was not made by the church until the late fourth century. It began by Pope Damasus I in the year 382 AD. And then this was followed by a series of councils a council at Hippo in the next year, 383. And then a council in Carthage in 397 and 419. And the council of Nyssa in 787 the Council of Florence in the 15th century in 1441, and finally the Council of Trent in 1546. So it was the Church that determined which books belonged in the Bible. And this is critical. The content of the Bible was determined by the Catholic Church by the end of the 4th century. And even Martin Luther acknowledged that the Catholic Church decided which books belong in the Bible. And so he wrote, we are obligated to yield many things to the papers that with them is the word of God, which we receive from them. Otherwise, we should have no nothing at all about it. But there's a problem here because many Protestants today reject the church's divine authority to determine which inspired books belong in the Bible. And this position actually undercuts the certainty of the whole New Testament. And so, for example, you have scholars, respected scholars like R.C. Sproul and others who claim, well, the Bible is a fallible collection of infallible books. Now, these scholars aren't necessarily proclaiming that the church made mistakes, but in reality, they really are. Because what happened is, after the Reformation, Protest rejected seven books and parts of other books out of the Old Testament. For example, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, the Book of Tobit, the Book of Judith, Sirach, Wisdom, Baruch, and then some of the parts of Esther and Daniel. Wow. And that is the reason that Protestant Old Testaments are seven books short. The 27 books of the New Testament are divided accordingly, beginning with the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the most important books because they focus on the life and the deeds of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts of the Apostles provides a history of the early church from Jesus' ascension to the Father to St. Paul's preaching in Rome. The first part of Acts focuses primarily on St. Peter's ministry. The second part focuses on St. Paul's ministry. Then we have Paul's wonderful 14 letters that are directed to specific pastoral needs affecting specific churches. His theology is not set forth in a single testament. He is the greatest theologian of early Christianity, and his teachings have enormous influence on Christian thinking ever since. And so we begin with his letter to the Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you can say, go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Then 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and his two letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, his letter to Titus, his letter to Philemon, and then it ends with the beautiful book of Hebrews, which focuses on the priesthood of Jesus Christ, according to the order of Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews is staggeringly beautiful. Then we have seven letters that are called Catholic letters, because they're not directed to a specific church, but they're directed to the church as a whole. And so we have the letter of St. James, two letters of St. Peter, three letters of John, and then finally the book of Jude. And then the New Testament ends with a staggeringly challenging and beautiful book of Revelation, also called the Apocalypse. It's a literary masterpiece that uses very figurative language to show how God directs the destiny of men and nations, um, boy, and anticipates the great event of Jesus triumphant second coming. The book of Revelation ends with the depiction of paradise in the heavenly Jerusalem. And I saw no more a temple in the city. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Oh, this is so beautiful. And the city has no need of sun and moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God is its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. There's so much we can say about divine revelation in general, about sacred tradition, and especially the scriptures. The Bible is so important. It is the Holy Spirit's whisper of love communicated to men in writing. Sacred scripture gives an exciting freshness to the study of the Catholic faith because it makes that faith come alive, kind of like the human soul makes the body come alive. But when we study the truths of faith without its biblical foundation, well, we're just studying a corpse. And so for this reason, the Catholic Church teaches that the study of the sacred page should be the very soul of sacred theology. And so it is that the Church makes its own in the Catechism, the words of St. Jerome, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. When we study the Word of God, the Bible, we encounter the divine Word, who is God. So, how should we go about this study? When we study the Bible, we should begin by prayerfully having an open heart and asking the Holy Spirit to leap from the divine page and inflame our hearts. Come Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, your well-beloved spouse. We need the Holy Spirit's guidance. The Church also teaches that the Bible is inerrant. It affirms that the books of sacred scripture firmly, faithfully and without error teach that truth, which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided to the sacred scriptures. And thus the Church proclaims, that it has always venerated the divine scriptures as she venerated the body of the Lord. And what's so wonderful, when we study the Bible, we don't have to be loose cannons just out there trying to figure it out. The church gives us an interpretive guideline because the Bible doesn't interpret itself. The infallible teaching of the church gives us, gives Christians a sure guide when studying the scriptures. And thus St. Paul taught, the Church of the Living God is the pillar and bulwark of foundation of truth, not the Bible. And as a result, this infallible guide, because of this, everything that the Catholic teaches today is fully in agreement with what it taught for the last 21 centuries. So let us end